The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. And as we're rolling into the new year, it's a great time to set your goals and make sure it'll be a strong year for you and your business. And making that perfect hire can help set up your team for success. But where do you find that person? You can post on a job board and hope the right person will apply. But why leave it up to chance when you can post your job where people go every day to make connections, grow their career, and discover job opportunities? LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but nine out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. And with most U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. People with the right skills and background for your role who are also ready for something new. It's the best way to find a person who will help you grow your business and why a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. So find the right people for your business this year at LinkedIn.com slash Taffer and get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash Taffer to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash Taffer. Terms and conditions apply. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Well, here we go. Episode number 35 of my No Excuses podcast. I'm John Taffer, and hello. Before we get going, i got to ask you, please hit subscribe at Apple Podcast or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday automatically, so do that for me. I also love when you post comments, or if you'd like to be on the podcast with me, just send me an email. I'd love to hear from you at podcast at johntaffer.com. Just send me a note uh, how to get in touch with you, what you want to talk about, to podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com. Well... Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. You know, I was looking online, and there's some fascinating things about the business of Valentine's Day. And and, uh, this sort of blew me away. Uh, Corey, this will shock you. How many billions of dollars do you think Valentine's Day is worth to Americans? What would you guess? Oh, I got to say 20 to 30. Well, not quite that much. 17.55 billion uh, uh, would be a new record for the holiday. This year they're expecting it. And it started, believe it or not, when Americans started exchanging Valentines in the 1700s. And the first mass-produced Valentine cards in America were produced by a a woman called Esther Howland. And she's called the mother of the Valentine. And the 1840s, uh, uh, it completely blew off. Today, and this will shock me, this sort of shocked me, Valentine's Day is the second most amount of greeting cards uh, sold in the year. First is Christmas. Wow. Christmas and then Valentine's Day. 145 million Valentine's cards Jeez. were sold uh, last year. Let's think about that for a second. So you go to a card shop, right? You, you pick out your card. Even if it's really well printed, you know, and it's embossed and it's raised and, and, it's, a, and it's a really beautiful card. You know, they're making thousands of these. They, they have their own print facilities. What could it possibly cost to produce that card? And then you think of the printed ones, and now they get what four ninety five, five ninety five, six ninety five for a card. Cards are expensive, man. Yeah. When you're selling one hundred and forty five million of those suckers, that's a lot of money. Uh, uh, so that's the history of Valentine's Day. But you know, putting that aside, socially it means something. You know, it, the fact that we take a moment to, to recognize those people that we love is a cool thing. Uh, uh, and so think about what it does for the flower industry. Yeah. Restaurant industry, of course, has huge Valentine's Day's dinners and is impacted. The bar industry is impacted, of course. Think of what happens with television around Valentine's Day. They pick different programming. Radio people, media people like myself are talking about Valentine's Day. People go out and they wear red on Valentine's Day. They have Valentine's Day cakes, Valentine's Day cookies, heart-shaped this, heart-shaped that. It's an incredible impact on our society for about a week of the year. And, and anything that does that... Uh, uh, that impacts, you know, what we eat, what we see, what we hear uh, is pretty darn powerful. So 
I like to look back and look at work that I did a year or two ago and, and you know, something I haven't thought about in a while and pull it out and either re-listen to it, re-watch it, re-read it. And I took a few days off. I went down to my place in, in Palm Springs and I, to take it easy for a couple of days. And sitting on the shelf down there was a copy of my book, Don't Bullshit Yourself, Crush the Excuses That Are Holding You Back. Now, I wrote this book, Corey, about two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago I started it. Okay. And, you know, it gets published and it made the New York Times bestseller list. And I'm not trying to sell books here. That's not what this is about. Right. And two and a half years later, I go back and I said, son, I want to flip through it. So I flipped through it. Then, son of a gun, I read the sucker. And I read it cover to cover. And it's interesting to read something two and a half years after you wrote it that, you know, gosh knows how many people have read the darn thing and, and reassess yourself. So I did, and I realized, you know, at the time, I was really, really proud of this book. And now I read it two and a half years later after it's published, and I think I'm even more proud of it. Uh, uh, and I've never really talked about the book on the podcast before. No, yeah, you haven't. So when I was producing Bar Rescue, and I got to about the 120th episode, I'm at my, I start, by the way, I start shooting next week. Uh, matter of fact, Wednesday is day one of episode 170. And I start producing Bar Rescue episodes. Next week, we're producing 12 of them. And uh, the new season, or the new episodes, I should say, start on the Paramount Network on March 3rd. Uh, uh, so we have 10 that nobody's seen. We're starting with those, and I'm making 12 more. So there's 22 new episodes coming. Anyway, at about a, episode 120, I realized one day I found a common denominator of failure. I had never, ever found it before. And it hit me between the eyes. And I realized after 120 bar rescues, not one owner ever, Corey, came up to me when I said, why are you failing? Not one of them ever said to me, John, I'm failing because of me. Not one. Either yeah. it was they're failing because of their employees or they're failing because their cook stinks. Excuses. Or, yeah, or they're failing because of the competition or the government. One bar operator in Detroit, Michigan, actually told me that she was failing because of the value of the euro in freaking Greece. Okay. I mean, the excuses of family and friends and environment and snow and rain was unbelievable. Years ago, when I owned 17 restaurants and bars, my managers used to have a revenue report that they would complete every day. And that revenue report would say how many guests came through, what the revenues were, and it gave me a whole sales report for the day. And on the top of that report was a line for comment. And they would write on that line weather and things like that. And they'd write things like, revenues low, rainy day. And then the next day they'd write, revenues low, rainy day. Then the third day they would write, revenues low, first nice day. Then the next day they'd write, not great day, cool out. And I realized this wasn't a comment line. It was a freaking excuse line. Right. And it gave them a reason to justify the, the, the fact that they didn't perform that day. So I removed that line from the sheet. That was years ago. But I didn't hit me between the eyes like Bar Rescue did. And one day I realized about 120 episodes in the Bar Rescue, and this is guys dealing with 120, actually 150 owners, including partners, maybe five, 600 employees, 120 operations and cities and markets. So when we talk about 120 Bar Rescues, there's a lot to that. So then I started to think, okay, if excuses are the common denominator of failure, then what the hell is an excuse? So then I started defining what an excuse is. And an excuse is nothing but a reconciliation of a mistake. So either you did something you shouldn't have, right? Yeah. You didn't do something you should have, right? Yeah. Or you screwed something up. If you didn't do one of those three things, you'd have no reason for an excuse, would you? No. So what does an excuse do? It allows you to feel good about your own screw-ups. So that's what got me going on the books. And now I realize to myself, wow, I really found a common denominator of failure, excuses. Now I define an excuse of what it is, a reconciliation of a mistake, just to make us feel better. And then I thought to myself, well, what are the biggest excuses that we make? So I decided I was going to write a book that identified the six biggest excuses that we all use, me too. And then I wanted to destroy 
those excuses so nobody could ever use them again. So I'm going to give you the list of the six, and then we're going to talk about them for a minute. First is fear. I love this one. Oh, I'm scared to do it. Oh, I'm scared. Think about the excuse of fear. Now, unless you're going to jump off a cliff with a parachute or do something you know that's extreme in that kind of a way, if it's about a decision regarding your life or your business, millions of people have already done what you're scared of doing. If you think about it, whether it's an investment, whether it's taking a leap into a relationship or out of a relationship, no matter what it is that you're scared about in day-to-day life or day-to-day business, if fear is holding you back, fear is BS. Because in almost every case, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, have already done what you're scared to do. So fear is an excuse, and if you think about it, you can discard it. And the book talks a lot more about it, but in a simplistic sense, fear is BS. The second excuse that we attacked is knowledge. I love the excuse of knowledge. Well, you know, I don't really know what I was doing about this. I, I had no knowledge. I really didn't know what to do. Tell that to Stephen Jobs, who had no knowledge when he started building a PC in his garage and wasn't a programmer even on the day of his death didn't know how to program a computer or do coding. So knowledge is nothing but a freaking excuse, and it goes both ways. How about that person you meet whose ego is so great that they have more knowledge? Oh, he's overqualified for the job. Corey, you know, I, I think that maybe I, uh, 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 I'm overqualified for this position. I'm freaking starving to death. I need a job, but uh, I'm overqualified for this position. What BS that is. <laughs> And then what about the guy who says, well, you know, you need to do math and you need to add this up and you need to, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, you can learn. That's the great thing about today on the Internet and YouTube and all of these platforms. You can learn today. So fact of the matter is that knowledge is BS. You can learn the knowledge that you need to know. And if you think you're overqualified, well, you're no more qualified than the person sitting across the table from you at that moment because he's the guy who holds the job when you don't. So knowledge and the fear that you don't know enough is no reason to move forward. Fact of the matter is some of the greatest stories ever about lack of knowledge is what turns into innovation. You see, Corey, if I knew everything about everything, I wouldn't have to innovate, would I? No. I just stay within the envelope. It's when I don't know about something, that's when I start stepping out of the box in many cases. So to me, in many cases, a lack of knowledge is an asset It's exciting because you're going to step into it with fresh eyes and come up with new ideas. Well, we blew away fear and we blew away the lack or too much knowledge. Those are two excuses that are complete BS. Let's go to the third one. I love this one. Time. Well, you know, I just didn't have the time to do it. Uh, you know, it's, you know, my schedule just didn't allow me to do it at this point. You know, when I find the time, I'll get to it. Let me ask you a question, Corey. What's that? If you wanted to buy a purple polka dot shirt. And if it was really, really important to you, and if it was a career-changing move for you to have a purple polka dot shirt. I'm getting that shirt. Would you have woke up early this morning to find that shirt? Oh, yeah. Would you have stayed up late tonight to find that shirt? Oh, yeah. Would you have driven all over the city to find that freaking shirt? Oh, yeah. So it's not a question of time, is it? It's a question of priority. Right. When people say they didn't have the time, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, I didn't choose to make the time. You weren't important enough to me. I blew you off. So I ask you, when you use the excuse of time, aren't you blowing yourself off? Aren't you? Isn't that the excuse that you use when you procrastinate, when you don't go forward, when you don't do things that you should do, when you blow off responsibilities or time with people who maybe aren't as much fun to be with as others or whatever it might be? That, that you should be allocating time to that you're not. Understand that purple polka dot shirt. If you want it bad enough, you will make the time to get it. If you want to advance your life, advance your relationships, advance your business career, you will find the time to do it. Using time as an excuse is BS. It's bullshit. Just like the excuse of fear or the excuse of knowledge. Time is a way for you to lie to yourself. I love the next one. My fourth excuse was circumstance. 
I love so. Well, you know, it's, it snows all the time here, so it's really hard to make money in a retail store. Or I love years ago, I, I created a concept called Gooey's in the Sheridan Hotel. This is many years ago. And everybody said, John, you know, you can't do an outdoor deck concept in Seattle, Washington. It freaking rains here every day. Well, we created a concept with poles outside on the deck that you put your umbrellas in, Corey. And it was the coolest concept ever. Oh, wow. And when it rained, we were even busier because yeah. it was really cool to be outside in these, these umbrella-type things on these decks. So we took the liability, turned it into an asset. So if you can't change something because it's a circumstance – Aren't you an idiot to use it as an excuse if you can't change it? So if the price of fuel goes up to $10 a gallon, you got to survive at a price of $10 a gallon for fuel. You can't say, well, I'm not going to go into business because fuel prices are too high. It's the same price for everyone else. It's a BS excuse. You can't say, well, the weather, well, this. The fact of the matter is circumstance, and blaming it on circumstance is BS. Let me give you one more example. Remember the recession? Everybody said, oh, you know, it's a recession. Ah, it's the recession. Ah, it's the Congress. Ah, it's the president. It's a recession. Fact of the matter is I know people who became millionaires during the recession. Somebody made money during the recession, right, Corey? Oh, yeah. Why not you? So when you use circumstance as an excuse, circumstance is something you can't change. That is BS. Life is about adapting to circumstance, not using circumstance as an excuse. And that's why excuse number four, circumstance, is in fact BS. Excuse five, <laughs> ego. Corey, you ever notice the guy with the biggest ego always has the thinnest freaking wallet? <laughs> he's, yep. he's got the biggest mouth. He's got the biggest ego. He demands the most, and the guy can't afford to buy you freaking dinner. Exactly. You know, ego is false. Ego is derived from success. You can't have ego before you're successful. Life just doesn't afford that fairly. And when people have an ego before they're successful, those who are successful don't like it. To suggest that you're not going to go into a business because it's beneath you or because your ego doesn't permit it, when you, in fact it's an opportunity that moves your life forward, is just a reason not to do it. So, well, I can't come out. I'm scared. Uh, I don't have the knowledge. Uh, I really don't have the time. It's not the right circumstance to do it now, and it's really beneath me. <laughs> Five reasons. Not to go on with your life if you choose to accept them as reasons, but they're not. Ego also is complete BS. And the last excuse of my big six is scarcity. I love scarcity. Well, you know, I didn't have the money. Tell that to people who started businesses on dimes. Right, Corey? We all have yeah. friends that did that. Oh, yeah. So scarcity is not a reason not to do something. Well, you know, I, I really didn't have the, uh, the proper clothes to wear to those meetings. I've heard that before. I've actually heard people say that to Jeez. me. You know, I would have done it, but I didn't have to. Call a friend. Corey, if you need a black suit tomorrow and you didn't have the money to buy it, would you have a black suit tomorrow from a friend or somewhere? Oh, yeah. Of course. You always so, find a way. Of course. So scarcity is BS. You know, I heard a great story, and it's a little folklore, but it, it's also sort of true. Henry Ford years ago had a son-in-law by the name of John King, and John King was fired from the Ford uh, plant many, many years ago, and, and when Henry Ford, of course, was alive. And when he was fired, since he was sort of distant family, Henry Ford said to him, I'll give you all the wood scraps at the end of the assembly line. And John King took all those wood scraps, crushed them in charcoal briquettes, and created Kingsford charcoal briquettes. And he literally turned shit into Shinola. <laughs> so, so the fact of the matter is scarcity is not an excuse. It's an opportunity to dig in and turn something from nothing. And the biggest millionaires in this country are the ones that turned nothing into something. So scarcity is, in fact, BS. So let's take a minute and think about ourselves. Have we ever used fear as an excuse when, we, in fact, now when you think about it, we shouldn't have? Of course we have. And that means you might do it again. Have you ever used a lack of knowledge for reason not to pursue an opportunity, a relationship, something that, in fact, might have made your life better or happier? If you have, what scares me is that you might again. And have you ever said you don't have the time for something that you know damn well now when you think about it, you could have made the time if you wanted to? So do you realize at that moment you lied to yourself? And what worries me is you might do that again too. 
And how about blaming it on circumstance? Well, you know, this isn't right, and the economy isn't right, and, you know, there's building construction in the street, and it rains here. All of those circumstances are the same things that all of us live in. So if you're using that as an excuse, and it's the same thing that everybody else has, then you should be as successful as everyone else. So if you're using circumstance in the past to stop yourself from pursuing something that would make you happier or elevate your life, look back at it now and understand that it's BS. And what worries me is you might do it again. Ego, get rid of it if you have it. When you have a couple million bucks in a bank, then you're allowed to have ego. Not before then. It gets in your way at, at an earlier stage in a career. And the last one is scarcity. None of us start businesses or do things in life with all the resources we choose. That just doesn't happen with many of us whatsoever. So starting it with low resources means, my grandfather used to say, I don't have a thick checkbook. I better have a thick idea book. I better have a thick content contact book of friends that can help me. So scarcity, if you used that in the past and you think about it now, you know it's BS. And again, don't allow it to happen in the future. If you can manage these six excuses, you will do a far, far better managing the opportunities to come up in life, and you'll be able to show up instead of not show up, seize them, and find much greater success. So when you think about how those excuses hold you back, I wanted to have a guest on this week who doesn't accept those excuses by his very nature. And the fact of the matter is Derek Stevens has probably never read my book, Don't BS Yourself, because he's never BSed himself. This is a no-excuses guy who has come into my city, Las Vegas, taken over downtown, and is becoming a force that he's building a tallest building downtown now. And this guy is reshaping the history and the future of Las Vegas. And when I come back, I'll be with Derek Stevens. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Hey, everybody, it's Laura Ingram, and I'd like to invite you to check out my new show, The Laura Ingram Podcast, exclusively on Podcast One. So join me three days a week as I cover politics, the culture, everything in between, laugh, learn, all at the same time. Uh, we got you locked and loaded, and you'll be ready for the week, ready for the month. And it's very easy. You just subscribe today, download new episodes exclusively at podcastone.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. And you know mine's going to be one of your newest. Every car comes with its share of stories. How about that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date? Or the luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or how about the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer long? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth is when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation, moonroof, and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, you already know it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you can get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer, not available in all areas. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. You know, every once in a while, I get to have a guest here who inspires me. And Derek, you inspire me, buddy. So I have Derek Stevens, who's owner of the D in downtown Las Vegas, one of the best entrepreneurs in our city. I got to tell you, Derek. A- and you have an incredible story. So first, welcome. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate appreciate being here. And boy, what an intro. That's a little crazy, but thank you very much. Well, anybody who doesn't know you, your reputation should precede you. But you have a great story. You grew up in Detroit. Yeah, I did. I in uh, I grew up on the east side of Detroit and kind of lived all around Metro Detroit for uh, my first uh, 20, 20 some years. I'll tell you a story that very few people know. I owned professional bartender schools in Detroit, and many years ago, I had a school at the Adams Theater there. Oh, okay, at, at the Adams Circle, rather, right by the Kelty, and, and spent a whole bunch of time in Detroit. I lived in a Pontchartrain hotel downtown for about six months, and I remember seeing Detroit start to fall back then as a city. 
But you were in the auto business, right? You were supplier to the auto industry. Yeah, I'm a supplier to the auto industry, and uh, and um, still still involved in that business as well. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I I, uh, I kind of grew up and where I cut my teeth. Gotcha. So so being in that business, that's a business that's changed a lot over the years. Oh yeah, it sure has. It sure has. Right, and uh, and it continues to change. You know, it's it's one of those industries that's a critical industry for America. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's one something that always changes and. Uh, and uh, vehicles and models and and choices keep 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 uh, keep evolving. That's for sure. Yeah. Even though you're a supplier to the auto industry, there's always Japanese or foreign competitors that jump in. So is that like a given business, or do you still have to fight for it every year? Oh no, it's a, it's a, it's it's a fight. It's a fight year you know every year. Uh, you know our prices. We have to uh, we have to bid them out regularly, and prices generally have to go down. So you have to be more productive yep. uh, year over year. So it's a, it's an exceptionally competitive business. And then you have, of course, uh, rising labor costs, operating expenses, but yet that pressure to reduce cost is on you constantly. Yeah, you have to you have to reduce cost, and you know, and, and in this uh, you know this past year we've had uh, we've had another unique pressure, which is uh, which are the steel tariffs. So uh, all of a sudden, our, our, our raw material costs uh, have increased uh, quite a bit in the last uh, last eight months and how do your clients do they understand that and expect that pass through that causes some pressure for you oh it's a lot of pressure nobody yeah. nobody expects nobody nobody uh, um, allows a pass through so you have to negotiate and <laughs> uh, spend a lot of time negotiating so you grew up in a competitive world then you were competitor in business when you were young um, yeah you know I, I kind of grew up in in, uh, in that industry and uh, you know I was I was really kind of always used to it I mean you know every year uh, Every year you have to get better or, or uh, you know, you get thrown out. It's pretty simple. Yeah. You're a great promoter, though. Knowing you in Vegas, you're very promotionally oriented, aren't you? You know what? You know, since I came to Las Vegas, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that uh, that's kind of evolved, um, you know, for, for, for myself and our companies. And, and uh, you know, the the, the – the best part of it is is uh, we all we always try to have a lot of fun, and uh, as long as we're having fun, and you know we come up with some crazy ideas sometimes, and uh, you know a lot of them don't work, but but some do. Yeah. But uh, the nice thing, you know, we're a privately held company, so uh, you know You're nimble. I, I'm not I'm not sweating out my my numbers to. Uh, to to uh, to the analysts, so right, the equity uh, so, groups aren't on your back, <laughs> right? So so you know we're willing to we're willing to try things probably a little bit a little bit more than others, and you know that's one thing I really promote with our team is like come on let's come up with more ideas, more creativity, more creativity, and and then make sure that when something uh, something doesn't work, you know we we embrace we embrace uh, the failure, know, yeah, and we say okay, well we learned something from it, so yeah. we're going to move on. And let's just document it so we don't do it again next year. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so you were in Detroit. You, you're doing well in Detroit. Were you a gambler when you were young? Did you like gaming as, as just a general activity? Well, I was always um, I was always somebody that loved sports, you know. Mm. And, and uh, you know, I would say, uh, uh, you know, a younger guy that loves sports and, and somebody that kind of loves math, well, you can kind of figure out where my first gambling was. It was betting on betting on games, you know. Gotcha. So, so yeah. So I uh, I, I started betting on uh, on sports, and and uh, you know, and I love it. I, I I bet on sports to this day. I mean, I I just love uh, I love um, you know the additional uh, adrenaline you get from making a wager on the game. And uh, yeah, I've always I've always been involved. Uh, you know, from from a, from a gambling or gaming perspective, you know, um, that was my early early uh, early stages. So one day you said to yourself. I'm going to go to Las Vegas and buy a casino. Well, you know, it wasn't quite one day. It, it you know, sometimes when you look back at back at things, you might say, "Well, it's an overnight deal." But no, it was a pretty long story, and um, I, I won't I won't go into the details. But you know, in the automotive industry, you know, there's a lot of pressure to there's a lot of pressure to um, open plants in China, open plants in, in in other locations, and you know, the one thing I'm probably the proudest of is the fact that all of our plants are you know in, in the United States. Um, you know, we ship parts to China, we ship parts to. Canada, Mexico, Japan, Thailand, and things like that. You're a patriotic guy is a general rule. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean that 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 for me is a pretty big deal. I, it, it's it's fair to say I'm a, I'm a big uh, I'm a big uh, pro America type of guy, yeah. and uh, you know I love I love uh, products that are uh, you know made in the USA type of thing, and um, you know I would say what what ended up happening was. Uh, um, we decided that we were going to move some of our investment portfolio um, to a state that didn't have an income tax. You know, so uh, we moved our investment business um, to Nevada, and uh, happened to be in Las Vegas. And I'd been in Las Vegas many, many times for 
trade shows sure. and work, but also for pleasure because I mean I, I just love I love Las Vegas and uh, what's not to love? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so uh, you know I, we we moved our investment portfolio over uh, out here and 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 you know that was great, but you know I, I've always been an operator. I I'm I'm not um, really a passive investor. I, You're a hands-on I, guy. I, I I don't love managing a portfolio, but mm-hmm. I love running companies and. Uh, you know, we had an opportunity to buy in what I thought was a pretty unique um, uh, business in in the Golden Gate Hotel and Casino. Yeah. You know, it's right along Fremont Street in downtown yep. Las Vegas, uh, the oldest building in the history of Vegas. Address is one Fremont. I didn't and know it, that. And it was a, and it's a small little place, and it gave um, me an opportunity to get into a number of dis- different businesses that I haven't been in before, which is food, beverage, hotel, slot business, table business, mm-hmm. and such. And um, you know, we we, we kind of thought that well, let, let's see what happens. We're gonna we're gonna kind of renovate it and, and see how this thing grows, and and uh, and and it started growing. And uh, did it surprise you? Did you beat the goals that you thought you'd achieve in the beginning? You know, I would say I would say we um, we, we knew we were gonna come in and, and add a little bit of capital. We were gonna mm-hmm. renovate things, and uh, you know that that was maybe a little bit of a struggle for six months. But then all of a sudden, uh, you know, things started coming on. Now now I realize I bought this in. Uh, in March of 2008, and if you recollect at that point in time, that's when this big, big recession happened, you know. Yep. So, um, so you know, we had the overall economic, um, you know, situation occurring across the country, and that's right when we kind of bought in. I, I think, um, you know, we got a pretty good deal. We got a pretty good price on the, on, on the deal. Um, but it allowed us to kind of, kind of, um, get into the business in, in, a, in an economy that was contracting and, and, but it really what it did was it gave us an opportunity to really kind of learn, learn a number of things. Yes. Yeah, so you learned operations under a little pressure, which is a good way to learn it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was great. So, so you come into Vegas. So, so now you own the D right? I'm guessing the D is, I know it's been very successful. The place is packed all the time. So now you're a significant operator in town with those properties. So did the D exceed your expectations? Well, you know, I mean, we bought it in 2011, and it was a few years' worth of yeah. renovation. So, you know, we kind of struggled our way through that. Um, we, we always kept the hotel open. So mm-hmm. that was that was an interesting process. And it's probably a process going forward. It's something I probably wouldn't want to do again just because it's so difficult to create these great experiences right. On the when, site. when you're, you have so much renovation and demolition and pardon my dust sign, you know, yeah. if they, you know, and, and for, for, for over three years, we were like that. Um, so, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it just makes it tougher to create these memorable experiences. So, you know, now that now that we've gone through that and and, and, and basically that reno is complete and everything, um, now we're able to operate, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. So now this is the best part of the D, I guess. Everything's finished and it's the way you want it to be. Yeah. I mean, and so what, did it exceed your expectations? I would say, well, when we first started, um, I would say we uh, we we kind of knew what we were getting into, but the more we got into it, the more more additional things we wanted to do. You know, so so it, so when you look back with a five year look back, uh, I would say absolutely, it, it definitely exceeded where we wanted to go, and it's been a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, I would think so because when you walk in the building, you can see all the bodies. So so obviously yeah. we, we're doing well. Okay, so now after that, you then decided, okay, I'm going to take the next level, and you're now starting. I'm guessing the biggest project of your life. Is that fair? Yep, that's absolutely correct. So so you just announced what two weeks ago, three weeks ago, your new project. And I just want to ask you this for fun. Give it to me in a few sentences. I want to hear how you present it because it's so big. There's so much to present. I want to hear what you say. Yeah, you know, when, when we announced it, uh, this is a project we've been working on for a couple of years. So it's kind of kind of great to have uh, this big name announced and, and announce, you know, and, and, and all the renderings of what the new hotel is going to look like and all the special attractions and things yeah. like that. And what we wanted to do is we're, we're in downtown Las Vegas, and, and I'm a big, big um Big one on on history, on Vegas history. So we wanted to kind of celebrate all these great entrepreneurs and pioneers that came before us, you know. So so I would say, you know, we've tried to take all those moments in time, you know, whether it's 1950 or 1970 or 1990, all, all those moments when you have these great, you know, hotel, casino fellas. Let, let's say from Jay Sarno with, uh, sure. with, with Caesar's Palace and, yep. and then Bill Bennett with – Circus Circus and then the Luxor and then Steve and Wynn and, and Steve and Binions and yep. Yeah and, and and you know all those moments you know obviously the Mirage was a big big you know watershed a property yep. for Las Vegas. Yep. But even before that you know those moments when Jackie Gone had something or or, or or Benny Binion did they all had these great great things that you know at certain moments in time and I remember myself you know as a sports sports fan 
I remember myself the first time I walked in at that time it was called the Las Vegas Hilton. I and I walked into that super book, you know, and there's that moment of awe. I looked up at that super book and I thought, oh my, I'm in the greatest place on well, earth. We've never seen anything to that scale before. Right. right. And that's what we have in Vegas is scale, height, width, depth. I mean, nobody has the scale that we do. So you were blown away by that. Yeah, you know, there's just certain certain memories for me when we can come into Las Vegas over many years. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at that sports book. How wonderful this is. And then, you know, some of the great pools that I saw at the Mirage at that yeah. time. And then, you know, the first time I walked through Bellagio, I thought, holy smokes, is that great. And, you know, the history at Caesars. So what we wanted to do in our design, we wanted to create all these, you know, wow moments, these moments of awe where, where people could come in. And, and uh, you know, we, we said we're going to build the biggest and most dramatic sports book in in Las Vegas history. So that'll be part of Circa. Yep. Um, we're going to have, um, you know, I, I would say I've described it as uh, a, our, our, our pool, um, six pools. And, and it's, but it's more than a pool. It's an event space. It's, 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 and it's big. And, you know, I, I've said it's not the best, going to be the best pool downtown. It's not going to be the best pool in Las Vegas. It's going to be, this is going to be the best pool in American history, in America. <laughs> so, so we, we really tried to try to do things that I think, are going to be um, great for the town and um, create create more reasons for people to come to this great city. Okay, so I'm going to say something to you. I want to hear your reaction. Las Vegas Golden Knights. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, you know, for, for a kid that grew up in Detroit, you know, I had the ability to see the impact of hockey on, on the community I, I, right. I grew up in, in in Detroit. And, you know, when... Big hockey when, city. When, yeah, ho- hockey town. And, yeah. and, and when, when, you know... Bill Foley and and the Maloofs uh, called and they said, "Hey, we're going to bring this bring this team here. Do you want to be part of like this this group?" I think it was called the Founding Seventy Five or something. Where basically we had to go out and sell tickets. Yep. Um, but but boy, it was an easy sell. I could tell you that. And and the interesting thing was, I think Las Vegas had so much energy to have its first major league level sports team that people wanted to wanted to get into it. But then what happened? was just stunning. I mean yeah. to have to have a sport that's that exciting and so many people went to their very first NHL game here in the yeah. last year. Yeah. And I think when people go they're they're blown away the, the incredible. energy inside of T-Mobile and the boy work these, ethic. Yeah. The ni- nice players and the energy inside there and I think people are really kind of blown away. The Golden Knights have done such a great job. Obviously, on the ice last year was just ridiculously great. But the 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 whole element throughout the community. I mean, the Golden Knights have really done something great for our community. You know, uh, uh, at the end of the month, you're going to shake a lot of hands. You're going to see a lot of smiling faces in your properties. You're going to get a check. In theory, what means the most to you every day? Oh, well, you know, I. Uh, I would tell you what I, I, I really love is I, I love the fact that I get to talk to my team every day and we're always coming up with some way to get better. I, there's an element of continuous improvement that probably um, gets me more excited than anything than anything else. I love thinking about whether it's an annual event. So let's say Super Bowl. We, you know, okay, so let's Super Bowl. How are we going to make it a little bit better? You know, yeah. um, you know, if it was a few weeks ago, like, like it was consumer electronics. So how are we going to make it? So every all these all these annual events, and then and then you know, then you have the weekly. Like how are we going to make this Saturday better than last Saturday? And there's this excitement of of trying new things. I just I just love it, and my I think my team loves it, and uh, that's what really really gets me going every day. Yeah, so you're a pretty creative guy, actually. Well, we we try, we try. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny. We're so much alike. There is, I don't think, any property in Las Vegas that has more promotions than you. Um, yeah, we yeah we try yeah, a lot. A yeah, lot we, we have a lot. We've got a lot between your concerts and your gambling promotions. I mean, you have so much promotional activity going on. It does. It electrifies the property. It that, gives us this energy that's incredible. Yeah, it's true. We we want to make sure that when somebody comes and they give give us a few days out of their life and they want to get away from some of their hometown worries or whatnot, that we want to make sure they've got something new, fresh, and something that's exciting. Yeah. So you've lived a remarkable life. You know, you're born into an industry, right? Where you were born into a business, but you've made this so much your own. What would you say to that person who who is stuck in another city and has dreams in another place where did you get the courage to do this well I, you know i don't know that it, i i think uh i think the the easiest way to say it is you know you you show up to work and you show up a lot and you try to come in early and you try to leave late and uh 
And and then you know on your your wins and losses, uh, you know every win you have, you gain a little more confidence, and uh, and and um, you kind of you kind of go from there. I I I wouldn't say it was any one dramatic. You know, there's no you know watershed moment, but I but I think back about boy, I spent a lot of, a lot of years being the first guy opening the door at a you know in a manufacturing plant, and and. And and I think that's a that's a great thing. I, I tell that to a lot of people. I mean, we'll ask, well, what can we do? I go, just show up. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Just yeah. just show up. As long as you're there, something's going to happen. And, and you make your own luck. You do. And, and not only show up, shake as many hands as you can, look in as many eyes as you can, build as many relationships as you can. That's what my grandfather used to say. Life isn't how thick your checkbook is. It's how thick your phone book is. Uh, it was a way to so good, 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 uh, good way to say yeah, it. it is. So, so uh, uh, now you have Cirque's going to keep you busy for a couple of years, two, three years for sure. Do you have visions past that? Well, you know, this is the biggest project we've ever had, so we're going to have a couple years of of, uh, of going through the construction phase on, on this project while still operating the Golden Gate and the D and the Downtown Las Vegas Event yeah. Center. So that that's going to keep us busy for the next couple of years. And then once Circa opens, then uh, we get to run, um, you know, a three-property uh, right. group. And uh, we know that it's going to take, you know, it's, you know, we know year two is going to be better than year one. Year sure. three is going to be better than year two. So I think we got our hands full here for a while. Yeah, I bet you do. Let's talk about Detroit for a couple of seconds because I go to Detroit often. And what's going on in Detroit is unbelievable as far as an explosion and stuff. As a Detroit local, and I know you identify yourself very much as a, as a Detroit guy, what's going on? Are you excited, and is it as exciting as we all hear as those who don't live in Detroit? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, when I uh, I went to Michigan for my undergrads, when I left Ann Arbor, I, I moved to downtown Detroit back when I was uh, 21, and uh you know, there wasn't much going on, and a lot of abandoned buildings yep. um, come uh, 5 or 5.30 at night. I mean, the city was – I mean, it was very desolate. Yes. Um, it wasn't safe. You didn't yep. feel comfortable. Yep. There, no bedrooms downtown. There was, there, yep. there was really – really no one was living downtown. I mean, um, you know, the population uh, had declined, you know, so dramatically. Detroit was the only city – it still is the only city in America that actually lost a million people of population within the city proper. So it went from from two million to below a million people, and and what happened was this, you had this urban sprawl. So so now um, you know you've got these developments. It was an hour east of Detroit, an hour north, hour west, and and it left this kind of vacant area, and it was abandoned to the point where, for for budgetary reasons, um, you know they 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 quit lighting up streetlights, right, and, and tried you know, to close down whole communities. I mean, closing down yeah. square square miles within the city, you know where. Fenced it off where there was no water, no sewer, no power, no right. lights. Um, you know, and, and and it was it was really unbelievable to see what happened. But then all of a sudden, you know, after after really forty years of this decline, boom! In the last five years, I mean, I, the was there a trigger? Yeah, was there something you felt when it happened? Um, you know, I I think we all kind of kind of felt something was happening, but it's really it's really. Uh, I got to really pin it on a couple of couple of guys, um, Mike Illich and then the Illich family. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're the owners of uh, Little Caesars yep. Pizza. They're yep. they're the owners of the Detroit Tigers, yep. the Detroit Red Wings. They uh, they put a lot of their money, their corporate money, their family money into various projects downtown. And then we then there's this other guy that came in a little bit later, and boy, what an impact he, he's had. His name is Dan Gilbert, um, the owner of uh, Quicken Loans. Mm. Um, he's a native Detroiter and uh, one of our sponsors, by the way. Ah, very good. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, Dan's into into uh, well into ten digits here of investment. You know, wow. in, in downtown and uh, all of the new um, offices and now housing and. Now all of a sudden, Detroit's become this cool place for these oh, young yeah, kids. Hip again, you know. My son just graduated uh, from uh, Georgetown this spring, and the first thing he did is he got an apartment in downtown Detroit. And I, for me, I thought, oh man, that is so cool. That's, I used to have an apartment in the Jefferson, the Jeffersonian. Oh yeah, it was yeah. right on the water. Many yeah. many years ago, okay. it was one of the only apartment buildings downtown back then. I remember. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, uh, Detroit is is uh, it's an exciting time for Detroit. It really is. So I don't want to get political with you, but. When you when we look at all the economic policies that have come down upon us a year, as a business person who's multifaceted, do you see a better business climate today as an investor, as a business operator, than you did years ago? Um, and I'm saying pre post tax cuts, and I'm just trying to get, make a business question to you, not a political one. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, I, I think uh, some of the economic policies today are better than wh- where we were five mm-hmm. or ten years ago. 
Um, I think um, the ability for companies to, um, you know, accelerate some depreciation yep. and other things like that, that, you know, that's something that maybe in, 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 in mainstream, in, in the mainstream, uh, it's probably not the greatest cocktail party talk, but, it, but boy, it makes a big difference when you can make an investment and you, you can accelerate yeah. your depreciation. Yep. Uh, I, I think uh, the, the overall business environment today is far better. It's great to see you know, un, un, unemployment as low as what it is. Yep. Great to see, you know, just recently income going, income up. going up. I mean, income up, uh, you know, this last quarter, the, the, the 3%, 3%, 3%, 3%. Hasn't been 3% in over 10 years yep. to see wages go up like that. And when you see good employment and, you, and you, you, you know, low unemployment numbers and you see wages going up, you know, you, you know, there's a lot of good things happening. There's a yeah. lot of projects and there's investment and, uh, and, and overall, I'm, you know, I'm pretty excited about the current business environment. Yeah, me too. Are you finding that the, the, the change in regulatory issues and tax structure, are you finding that you're quicker to do a capital improvement, quicker to hire more people, quicker to go into a new project? A- absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it's, um, it's pretty clear. I mean, I think, um, December of 2018, uh, told us a lot because there's an awful lot of companies that were, Deciding, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna accelerate this renovation. I'm gonna accelerate this investment because I want to yeah. get it into 2018 tax year. So I think I think um, sound tax policy really really can impact the economy and employment very positively. Yeah, you know it's funny. I hosted the evening edit on Fox Business the last week of December oh. when the Fed did that last hike, yeah. and everybody was freaking out, and the market had made that decline. Now we finished off with the best January in ten years, et cetera. So, as a business person, as an investor, as an employer, uh, uh, are you jubilant about the future? Confident about the future? How do you feel? I uh, I definitely think that the uh, economy is in, in in a good place, and I think I think um, you know barring. Um, a big externality, um, you know, potentially, you know, a, a relationship change between China and the United States yep. or, you know, how Brexit plays out. Yep. I, I think the economy um, in the U.S. Is, is, is in as good a position, you know, that, that, that in my opinion, in the last 20 years. I, yeah. I think uh, I think there's a lot of good things happening. So um, so I'm, I'm very bullish on the future. Yeah, me too. And I'm seeing it impact. It's wonderful, but it's impacting people like you and I, but it's also impacting the people that work for us. It's really wonderful to see. Absolutely. You know, Derek, I want to thank you for a moment. As one who lives in Las Vegas, I love this city. I moved here from New York. You moved here from Detroit. And I have one question to ask you when we leave. You know, you've done a lot for this town. You have. Your sponsorship, your support, you know, your charitable nature. You are, and I'm going to make you blush, you're our next Steve Wynn. Oh, gosh. You are. I'm just one of the guys down the road. I'm, I'm glad I'm part of it right now. Uh, but, uh, boy, there's some uh, there's some really big guys here, you know, in, in, in the history of Las Vegas. And I guess I don't take myself all that seriously. I just like to keep growing. And uh, it's nice of you to say that. But, uh, but uh, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just small guys down here. But we're going to keep growing. How many employees will Circuit have? Uh, we should have about 1,500. 1,500 jobs. That's pretty terrific, buddy. Yeah. And good jobs yep. in a great place to live. So hopefully some more people move to Las Vegas. You're going to need them. That's right. We're, we're, we're actively recruiting. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty cool story. I mean, we recruit from all the hospitality schools, you know, Cornell, Michigan yep. State, UNLV. And, uh, you know, it's great to, great to see some of these young people get, in, get into the workforce and get going. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll be creating some jobs. So that's exciting. Okay, here's my last question for you because I've heard both sides of this story. You named your hotel the D. Now, I've heard that's after Detroit. I thought it was after Derek. Where did the D come from? Give me the conclusive answer. The conclusive answer, you're right on both accounts. I, I will tell you. Both? What, what happened was we, we renamed Fitzgerald's the D in, in 2012. 2012 was the year that the city of Las Vegas um, declared it was the year of downtown. So first it was named for D for downtown. Um, um, number two, it's really, this is, you know, the D is not a Detroit themed casino, but it was something that my brother and I wanted to do. It's a little bit of a tip of the cap to our hometown. So we always, you know, yeah. we always, you know, I revere Detroit and it's more of a little bit of a tip of the cap from where we came from and everybody calls it the D when you're from Detroit. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then lastly, yeah, a lot of my friends, they all just call me D. So just, you know, it just kind of happened. You it was know? perfect. It all came together. <laughs> it all worked out. The stars aligned. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, um, Steve Wynn is a good friend of mine, and, and a lot of the casino owners in town are good. You know, I want people to know that, that you know wealth doesn't take one's heart away, and wealth doesn't take one's smile away. You're a great guy. You are. You're an incredibly relatable guy. You have a good heart. You're really good for this city, and it's an honor to talk to you. 
Thank you for being here, Derek. Thank you. I, I appreciate being here. And, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of fun. And, uh, well, I, I appreciate what you're doing in Las Vegas. I mean, this is this is such a great city. It is the best city of all to live in. I would never leave this town. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, before I brought Derek on, I told you he was a guy with no excuses. Taking risk is everything about our lives. Knowing who you are, hiring great people. Look at how Derek challenges them every day. And there's no operation that promotes more than his, markets more aggressively than his, implements new ideas every day. Every afternoon there's something going on there. Derek is a great example of what happens when we push ourselves and push the people around us. But he's really changing the lives of all the people that work for him, too. And that's really, really cool. And speaking of cool, it's time for my favorite part of the show, audience call-ins. We got some good calls, Corey? Yeah, we do. Great. Let's do it, buddy. I'll be right back. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Shut it down! Shut it down! All right, John, new week, new callers. Let's get in it. So first up, we have Jeff. He owns a barbecue restaurant, and he wants to add a bar. Hey, Jeff. How you doing, man? Hi, John. How are you? Good, thanks. Were you in the business already, and you want to open a bar, or are you just getting into the business? Well, right now, I've got, I own Linville Smoke and Jay's Barbecue, mm-hmm. and it's a takeout kitchen. And in March, I'll be acquiring another part of the building where I can turn in to actually have, you know, a sit-down restaurant and a bar. Oh, that's exciting. You know, there, It is very exciting. You know, there's a number of things, in, and, uh, you know, we happen to have done the, uh, all the cocktail programs at Famous Dave's Barbecue, which is the largest barbecue chain in America. And when, yep. we, and when we developed that program, you know, we wanted to create a cocktail program that fit with barbecue. And we found out a couple of things that I want to share with you that will really be helpful. First of all, barbecue, okay. when you order it, since it's all ready, it's sort of slice and serve, if you will. Uh, uh, it's not cooked to order, of course, because it's smoked for hours ahead of time. Barbecue can come out of the kitchen in five, six minutes. So there's no time to drink a cocktail before you eat. So when we took a look at a lot of barbecue restaurants and our consulting division analyzed it, we realized, okay, we have to change the ordering sequence. When people sit down, they can't have a barbecue menu. They have to have a cocktail menu first. So we actually put cocktail table tents, posters on the walls with our five or six signature cocktails so that everybody knew they were really, really important. And when you sat down, we forced you to think about cocktails and drinks for a minute before we put the barbecue menu in front of you. That was one. Really, really important. Two, so now they're thinking about cocktails. We got them to order cocktails. Next, when they ordered the cocktails, we made certain that food did not come out of the kitchen for about eight or nine minutes, except when we were in an express lunch situation where we'd send it out quicker to make certain that people had a chance to enjoy their cocktails and that we created that experience. Traditionally, food comes out of a kitchen in 10 to 12 minutes. So by getting it out in nine minutes rather than six or five, it created a better drinking experience. The next thing we did is we created rituals. And there's 18 things, 18 elements to merchandising cocktails. I wrote in one of my books, actually. Everything from the garnish to sipstick to the colors to what's rimmed on the glass to the height of the glass to the ingredients to what brand is used. But there's many, many. And, and some of those are bartender rituals. Well, we got little bottles with snap tops and hand smoking devices, and we started smoking our own whiskey. So we put smoke in the bottle, we put an ounce of whiskey in, and we put a cap on it, we put it behind the bar, so our whiskey was four years and four days old, because we smoked it. Then we created an iced tea with a special top, a cocktail, and we filled the glass with smoke at at the bar, put a top on it, and then we'd send it out to the table that way, so the customer would take the top off and fill the glass, and the smoke would come out when he filled the glass. My point is this, we connected the cocktail program to barbecue. We connected the service sequencing to ordering and enjoying cocktails. And if we didn't make those adjustments, it wouldn't have worked. I don't want to share secret things, but let's just say that the financial results were huge for the company. So you must really think about this in a creative sense. You must have cocktails that work with smoked products. You must have some signature cocktails that are your own, just like your barbecue sauce and your barbecue is your own, right? It has its own personality right. and identity to it. Your drinks better have the same. So you've got to have okay. your five to six signature drinks. Do something behind the bar that's uniquely yours, some kind of a ritual. Do something tableside that's some kind of a ritual. That's what makes cocktails important. And in a casual barbecue restaurant, it's very easy for cocktails to be meaningless even though you have them. 
You need to okay. make them important. Now, here's the good part. If you can get up to 20 to 30% beverage sales, on 30% beverage sales, you can double your profits. Really? Because the cost of beverages is, is half of what your food cost is. You follow me? Oh, sure, sure. So you don't have the, the product cost. You don't have the intensity of equipment. You don't have the labor intensity. So for every revenue dollar you create in cocktails, you'll make almost two, two and a half times profit of food in some cases. So there's a real great incentive to do that. Uh, uh, so I would take a look at all of those things. Also, I would create some type of a smoke cocktail. I would also create some type of a bourbon or whiskey barbecue sauce that you can feature on one appetizer. So you connect right. spirits to your barbecue menu somewhere. I'm not saying change all your okay. sauces, but you could do one appetizer that has a bourbon barbecue sauce on it to connect it to the bar that way as well. I hope that's helpful, okay. man. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe it. There you go. That's that's uh, 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 implementing a bar menu in a barbecue restaurant 101. Two other quick things that might be helpful to you, Jeff. Uh, the nightclub okay. and bar convention, and I don't know, and I happen to be chairman of it, is, is in uh, March 25th through 27th in Las Vegas. You would really benefit from going. There's about 70 educational classes, 700 booths. And uh, uh, you'd really get an awful lot out of it. It's something you should consider going to. And you can find out more information about the nightclub and bar convention from them at nightclub.com. But it's really, really worth a, a look at, at some of their educational programs. Uh, um, okay. Uh, they'll really arm you for success. And good luck, buddy. Oh, it's awesome. Thank you so much. Take care. All right, moving on. We have Sharon from Long Island, New York. She wants to know what the mobility issues are when renovating a bar. Hi, Sharon. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, John. Well, I watch Bar Rescue all of the time, and I know that probably 90% winds up on the cutting room floor of what is actually edited brilliantly and shown on screen. But I've never seen any obvious accommodation for someone with mobility issues or in a wheelchair, um, provided they could even get into the place, because some places they can't. But uh, when everything is at pub height, uh, someone in a wheelchair, someone with mobility issues as myself, I have MS, um, it can be very difficult. And so, when, um, so what what you're talking about is is obviously handicapped accessibility, and there's something called the American Disabilities Act, which I'm sure you're well aware of, Sharon. Which is the yes, ADA. Yes, passed on my birthday. Oh, ah, okay. Well, that's that's a good thing to have passed on your birthday. <laughs> Twenty six. Yeah. So, so the I'm, American I'm Disability. Very aware of that, and, yep. and that was actually before I was diagnosed with MS. But and it's it's a very it important means act. A lot. It does. Me. It's a very important act, and what it does is it allows people who are immobile or, or handicapped in some way, or blind, whatever, or the same accessibility yeah. that we have to the same experiences that Correct. we have. So we always make certain, A, that we have accessibility in the bathrooms. We always make certain that we have low-top tables. And you're right. Those stories are not often told on TV. You know what? I'm gonna, every once in a while. I'm starting new, 12 new episodes on Wednesday. Right. And I'm going to make sure that we stick it in one because it is something that we're very conscious about because, of course, we're bound by building codes, and ADA is an important part of building codes too. But it's more right. than that. You know, we want to provide a great experience. In many cases, the owner's parents are in wheelchairs, et cetera. Also, right. when there's elevated areas where there's steps for, the, for them to get up to, right. we make certain the same experience exists on the first level so there's no reason for them to go to the second level uh, because that becomes difficult for everyone. So we don't show that it in the episodes a lot. a lot, but I'm going to make sure we show show it in one this season. Sharon, thanks for your call. I appreciated talking to you, and I think you brought us uh, to talk about an important topic. So enjoy. Right, and I want to thank you for your book also, because I saw it on Twitter, immediately ordered it, but your book, I know, is going to be instrumental in me straightening out some of the chaos and me being able to get through some of the um, horrendous stuff that my life is at this moment. And I... Well, Greatly appreciate it. Well, after talking with you for a few minutes, I know there's a lot of good. So hold on to that, and and thank you for bringing this up. And watch this season; you're going to see uh, uh, me oh, mention this topic. Okay, all righty. <laughs> Take care, Sharon. Bye bye. All right. So I have a confession. That is my favorite part of the show. You know, I love 
talking in the beginning. Of course, interviews are great, but talking to all of you is the favorite part of the show because I never know what you're going to throw at me. Listen, I'd really love it if you'd be on the show. You can challenge me, argue with me, disagree with me, agree with me, whatever you like, but the more challenging, the better. Just send an email to podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com. Corey will open those emails. He'll set it up with you, and then you and I will talk on a podcast, and we'll have some fun. And by the way, while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts or go to podcast.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Well, this was a great episode. I look forward to next week with Dana White. Uh, uh, and, you know, this was a really serious podcast. We talked about excuses, and I hope we talked about things that registered with us all. If we can knock excuses out of our lives, think of what the impact is if you don't have a reason for an excuse in the first place. Well, next week I have Dana White. Dana White took UFC, uh, Corey, from a $2 million company to $4.65 billion, with a B. That's unbelievable. Oh, he's a, he's a legend in sports. Really, really great guy. And I'm going over to UFC to interview Dana in his office and take a tour of the facilities over there. So it's going to be a great podcast. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review.